Modern Love, the podcast, is supported by... Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Produced by the iLab at WBUR Boston. From the New York Times and WBUR Boston, this is Modern Love. Stories of love, loss, and redemption. I'm your host, Meghna Chakrabarty. After a divorce, it can feel like the last thing you want to do is revisit the past. But a ritual forced Cindy Shupak to do just that. And she writes about it in her essay, An Ancient Coda to My 21st Century Divorce. It's read by Amy Landecker, who's best known for her work in Amazon's Transparent. I was finally getting married. That's what I kept telling people. I didn't say... I was finally getting married again. Because bringing up a first marriage during the planning of a second is a major buzzkill for everyone involved. It reminds the bride and groom at a time when their biggest worry should be buttercream versus spun sugar, that love does not always conquer all. And I didn't want to hang that cloud over my fiancé, Ian, Because this was his first wedding. Another term I didn't like. Because it implied he may have a second. So we tried not to talk about first or second anythings. Until our meeting with the rabbi. Ian called our rabbi the hot rabbi. Because she was young and hip and, well, hot. I didn't mind his calling her hot. In fact, I found it reassuring, because it was yet another indication that Ian was not gay. Above all, I wanted to avoid publicly declaring my love for someone, only to have him later realize he's gay. Again. Yes. Okay. So, that's what happened the first time. And that's what I told the hot rabbi when she asked if either of us had been married before. She blinked and nodded, appropriately unfazed. Then she asked, was he Jewish? This seemed like a moot point to me, but I told her, yes, he was. I remember how happy my parents were that I was marrying a Jewish doctor, It was like winning the Jewish lottery, until he turned out to be gay. After that, my parents cared less about my boyfriend's religion than his ability to name at least three pro ball players. Therefore, it was nice, but not essential, that Ian was Jewish. Ian was a bad boy, motorcycle-riding, tattooed, lawyer-poet chef who proposed to me on a beach at sunset, 
riding a white horse and dressed as a knight. The fact that he was Jewish was among the least remarkable things about him. Among the most remarkable things about him was that after hearing my story, he remained straight. During the divorce process, I was toying with stand-up comedy, and my friend and fellow comic Rob had been endlessly fascinated by my story, asking, what were the signs? How did he tell you? A year later, Rob came out, forcing me to see, in retrospect, that for him, the hero of my story was my husband. At a Hollywood party, I told my story to a cute guy I thought was flirting with me, only to learn that he already was married. To a man. He explained that he had never even dated men until he met his husband while traveling abroad. Then I told that story to my friend who was the host of the party, and he confessed that he was bisexual, which he said was often difficult for potential partners to comprehend. For example, he asked, how would I feel about dating him? When I realized his question was not rhetorical, I blushed and declined. Then I told that story to a male friend I knew to be straight, and he also confessed he was thinking of dating men. But after coming out to his stunned parents and trying a couple of gay relationships, he decided he was more interested in women, and he's now married to a woman who had previously considered herself a lesbian. My feeling at this point, when everyone's sexuality seemed to be in flux, was simply, pick a side. I'm fine with it all. Just declare a major. Now, with the hot rabbi, I was thinking, what a relief it was that I could finally tell my story without outing anybody when she announced that I should get a get. A what? A get, she explained, is a Jewish divorce certificate. And although Ian and I did not technically need one to marry, without it, under Jewish law, our children would basically be considered illegitimate. She also thought the process could be good closure. To me, it sounded like the opposite of closure. It would require reopening the lines of communication that my ex-husband and I had finally shut down after years of trying to prove we were friends. We were friends. We wished each other well. It was just easier, I thought, to wish each other well from afar. Also, we'd already had a version of closure. When his parents were having trouble accepting that he was gay, they cut him off financially. He was still in medical school and strapped for cash, and the one thing he really wanted was to buy a house. So I helped him with the down payment by giving back the extravagant emerald-cut engagement ring that he, out of guilt, had told me to keep. I had stored it in a safe deposit box, not wanting to wear it, not ready to sell or reset it. I would occasionally visit my ring, visit my old married self, but even with nobody present, I was aware how pathetic I looked sitting in a bank cubicle modeling my engagement ring. 
So when I had the opportunity to return it, I jumped at the chance. I said, with this ring, will you not marry me? And we had a little moment, and he bought his house, and that was that. Until now. When I called my ex-husband in Los Angeles, he was surprised to hear from me, happy that I was marrying, and a little dubious about what I was asking him to do. I assured him I would fly in from New York, pay the fee, and do all the homework. His only responsibility would be to show up. When he suggested we have a post-get-get-together so I could meet his children, I started to think, this may be good closure after all. Our awkward reunion took place outside an industrial building that served as an office for the Orthodox rabbi whose name I found through an organization that facilitates gets. We made small talk while I pressed the buzzer. You look good. You too. How are your parents? Until it became clear that nobody was responding to the buzzing. We called the rabbi's home number. He answered. And that's when we learned there was confusion about the time and we would have to reschedule. When we explained that it had taken us over 10 years to make this appointment, the rabbi said he would try to find two witnesses. That's how it came to pass that we had an hour to kill. And my ex-husband said his partner and children were nearby shopping. So maybe we should have our get-together now. It's not often a girl has the chance to have lunch with the man she thought she would have children with and the man he had them with. But the truth is, they were a pretty perfect family without me. I had met my ex-husband's partner at a Christmas party years earlier and liked him immediately. He was handsome, smart, kind, and funny. And whether it was accurate or not, I found it flattering to imagine that he was the male version of me. Now they'd adopted two beautiful boys. As I watched my ex-husband juggle juice boxes and crayons and children's menus, he smiled and warned, get ready. When we all arrived at the rabbi's office, he explained the process might take an hour, so my ex-husband told his family he would call them when we were done. The rabbi was old, and his two male witnesses were even older. They sat on one side of a table, and we sat on the other, and we watched in respectful silence as the rabbi slowly wrote our divorce document by hand, with pen and ink, in Hebrew. When my ex-husband left to feed the meter, the rabbi fixed me with a stare and asked the question that clearly had been bothering him since we arrived. Who was that other man who came with you? Since I wasn't sure of the official orthodox stance on homosexuality, I said it was my ex-husband's friend. And whose children were those? I didn't like where this was going. I asked if this would affect the get process. He said it would not, so I admitted that my ex-husband was gay and the other man was his partner, and those were their children. The two ancient witnesses looked at each other, and then the rabbi said flatly, I think that's sick. It's not sick, I said. 
they're very happy. In an unoriginal attempt at a joke, the rabbi said, Which one is the man? They're both men, I said. They're both very good men. When my ex-husband came back into the room, I felt ill. I had flown cross-country and paid $500 in cash so three old holy men could sit in judgment of him. And the irony was, he was the practicing Jew, not I. I was fuming, wondering if we should forget the get and get out while the getting was good, when we were informed that our document was complete. We were asked to stand and face each other. And then my ex-husband was asked to look into my eyes and repeat some phrases that meant basically, with this document, I release you. And we stood there, just as we had on our wedding day. He looked even more handsome and grown up and happy. And I thought about why he married me in the first place. Yes, he loved me, but also he was probably afraid he would never be able to have a family if he didn't marry a woman. Now he had that family without having to compromise who he was. And I thought about what he gave me all of those years ago when he unofficially released me. As much as I hated the heartbreak and longing, my new single life became the basis of my writing career, which led me to a job as a writer and producer on Sex and the City, which led me to New York, which led me to Ian. And then I thought about how this ridiculous, judgmental tribunal is what my ex-husband faces every day, often when he least expects it, and how hard it must have been for him to overcome that judgment in order to be honest with me and himself. So as he dropped the get into my open palms, which made it legally binding, I felt proud of him and proud of us for releasing each other to our proper destinies. I'm happy you're getting married, he said. Now I can finally stop feeling guilty. I told him he had no reason to feel guilty. But he said he couldn't help it. Some things, I guess, we're just born with. Amy Landecker, reading Cindy Schupack's essay, An Ancient Coda to My 21st Century Divorce. We'll catch up with Cindy after the break. There's danger out there. Every notification, swipe, social post, video, or selfie while driving risks your life. So while sharks might be scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. 
My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, fueled roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, checking with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. Cindy Shupak says that she did wonder a little about her ex-husband Sam's sexuality before they married, especially when he told her that he sometimes noticed men, even though he would never act on it. That was enough to bother me. And I talked to my friend Julie and I said, what do you think of that? Is that something I should worry about. And she's had this whole theory of the spectrum of sexuality and everyone lies somewhere along this spectrum. And then later she realized she was gay. So that was so. basically everywhere we were turning for advice were people struggling with the same thing, I think was the bottom line of it. Eventually, Cindy did tell Sam about what the rabbi had said about him and his family. What was surprising and sort of sad and revealing to me was he wasn't as surprised. He just said, that's that's what happens, you know, that's how it is. And that resignation that you're going to face that sort of homophobia in all different places and aspects of your life, it's partly what made me want to write this because it felt so shocking to me and it was not surprising to him. In writing the piece, I really wanted to, I mean, I felt that it was such a valentine to what we'd been through and that I was completely um, forgiving and actually appreciative of what he had to do, the strength it took to admit it, and I wrote it with that intent. Cindy does have one takeaway from all of this. I now know if a man is wondering if he might be gay, um, just assume he is. <laughs> That's just a good, a good rule. That's Cindy Shupak. She's an Emmy and Golden Globe award-winning TV writer and producer. She's worked on shows including Sex and the City, Better Things, and Modern Family. She's also written several books, including The Longest Date, Life as a Wife. And she's the director of the upcoming movie Otherhood, which will be released May 2019. We've got more after the break. This podcast is supported by Carvana. Looking for a new set of wheels? Shop for your next car the convenient way. 100% online with Carvana. Whether you're shopping for a vehicle at your leisure or if you need to get on the road, Carvana makes it super easy and hassle-free to browse their massive inventory of cars. Whenever, wherever. Plus, Carvana has thousands of quality cars for under $20,000. 
Visit Carvana.com or download the app to shop for cars the convenient and affordable way. My name is Thomas Gibbsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with a first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, checking with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. Daniel Jones, editor of the Modern Love column for the New York Times, says the way Cindy and her ex came together to participate in a ritual has stayed with him. It's this moment that she herself describes as being such a nice way to end a relationship that did not necessarily end nicely. And the way that they each release each other to their futures, any guilt is is released or a sense of misjudgment. They truly seem to want the best for each other. And it's just a piece that ends on, on that kind of a grace note. It was a forced situation, but it brings about a uh, sort of softer resolution. Thanks again to Amy Landecker for reading this week's essay. She says that she wanted to read Cindy's piece because it resonated strongly with her own divorce. The actual just divorcing in and of itself was one of the most painful things I'd gone through in my life. That sort of end of a dream or an idea or a lifestyle or losing your best friend and all the things that happen when that takes place. And we have both ended up so happily on the other side of it. And I wouldn't have believed that at the time. So I love the hope of the story that she sees how he gave her this gift that she found Ian. And I really feel that sometimes what could seem to be the hardest or we disagree with the most or we resist the most can lead us to some of the best times of our life. Next week, Busy Phillips. Caring for a child was so consuming it was easy to ignore how bad things had become. The thought of leaving Andrew was painful. The thought of leaving that little girl? Impossible. Modern Love is a production of The New York Times and WBUR, Boston's NPR station. It's produced, directed, and edited by Jessica Alpert, Caitlin O'Keefe, and John Parati. Original scoring and sound design by Matt Reed. The idea for the Modern Love podcast was conceived by Lisa Tobin. Iris Adler is our executive producer. Daniel Jones is the editor of Modern Love for The New York Times and advisor to the show. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. An Ancient Coda to My 21st Century Divorce by Cindy Shupak was performed with the permission of Brilliance Audio. You can hear this essay as part of a longer audiobook called The Longest Date, Life as a Wife. It's available on Amazon or at brilliantaudio.com. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. See you next week.